sure, blokes. The main character of today's book is of an emotional Frenchman and of a cold-hearted Englishman. But at least he ain't one of those bloody, reckless, independent Americans. I'll take pride in my independence, Holly. Welcome to the two retired homeschoolers. I'm Holly Matthews, and this is Rebecca, who is significantly younger than me, but you probably already knew that from the sound of her voice. Yeah, if you're having trouble telling us apart, just remember Holly's the one with the man voice. <laughs> Today's book is Assignment in Brittany by Helen McInnes, which is a surprisingly lifelike espionage thriller set in 1940 and written in 1942 that chronicles four weeks of the life of Martin Hearn, a human cinnamon roll who has gone undercover in occupied France to scout out German airfields in preparation for the Battle of Britain. Simple enough, until he involuntarily finds out he's a double agent in a town where French resistance is forming and the Gestapo is stationed. Will he fall in love with Anne, the quiet but surprisingly brave neighborhood girl, or with Elise, the stunning beauty who just might be up to no good? Will he live up to the teaching of Matthews, his sarcastic Scottish mentor? And can he get out of France with his crucial intelligence before the Nazis' suspicions of him are confirmed? We read this book because it was my turn to make us read my second favorite book for this podcast, and this is my second favorite book. Which surprisingly wasn't Mindconf, but kind of close. Stop. <laughs> no, I, I read it for the first time uh, last week and the week before it. It was a surprisingly long book, but not surprising seeing as it's Rebecca's second favorite book. It's like 429 pages, but it was worth it. You know, it was a very exact number. I just happened to know. But yeah, no, I really liked it a lot. It was kind of one of those books that grew on me more and more as I read it. And there were some points where I was like, do I like this? But overall, I think it was super well done. And if I ever do reread it, I think I'll like it even more than the first time I read it. Do you want to say some of your favorite quotes? Sure. Kind of give an idea of what the writing style of this book is like. Yeah. Okay. So my favorite quote that kind of pertains to the writing style. So right now, Hearn, who is the main character, he's in a dungeon, um, which the Nazis kept beating him up in, unfortunately. <laughs> He was trying to um, keep his cool, you know. He must think of something to stop this attack of nerves. If he let his mind give way, then there was no hope at all for him. Despair never won any game. Defeat came quickly to those who thought of it. He stood in the darkness, his weight sagging against the cold wall. Outside, the moonlight was fading. He thought of the curve of hills, cloud shadows weaving over furrow-stitched fields, the smell of hay and clover under the sun's warm rays, the hum of bees and the clear note of a girl's gentle voice laughing, a light, clear voice made to sing, made to sing a Claire de Lune. I just feel like it's a good um, indicator of what the style, like we start out with saying something super profound, then we talk about nature for a while, and then we go back to the very like dry analysis of what Hearn's going to do next. And that was just kind of the perpetual cycle. <laughs> and also every chapter, like seriously, almost every single chapter opened with the description of some tree or sky or I never I never realized that. In all the times I've read that book, I never noticed that, but it explains so much about why I like it so much. So I have a favorite quote that's been one of my favorite quotes. Um, since I probably the first time I read this, certainly the second or third or fourth or fifth or whatever at the time. Yeah, like she reads, reads, guys. Like what a nerd. Hush, man voice. <laughs> um so he's talking to the mom of a guy who 
turned out to be a fifth columnist. He betrayed his country. His mom says, you may think I have driven him to these enthusiasms. I assure you, I made excuses for him every time until last year when this terrible war began. You may think I am a bitter old woman, but my bitterness only began then. Too late, thought Hearn pityingly, too late. If less excuses had been made ten years, even five years ago, for Bertrand Corlay, there might have been no bitterness today. There were some types of men whose willfulness thrived on the excuses that were made for them, and they were the kind of people who never knew when they had gone far enough in their selfishness, who never knew when to stop. The more allowances that were made for them, the more they presumed. That's... That describes I, some people so well. I know. And I had never thought of it before. And I was like, that's like true. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's my favorite quote because I thought about that quote a lot. And basically like for anyone, you shouldn't just be making excuse after excuse. You should kind of hold them accountable if you want them to end up a good person. Well, and that's kind of how the German conquest started World War II, if you think about it. Like a lot of allowances were made for first Hitler, then Germany at first, and people were kind of not like, okay, facing it. Now Czechoslovakia. Okay, okay. But- and they just kept taking more and more, and they were like, oh, wow, there's like a line that they've crossed, and we now need to do something about this. Yeah, and we were like, okay, okay, they only crossed it a little. Okay, they only crossed it a little more. Okay, they're a mile across now. we got to do something. Yeah, and I yeah. guess it's because we came off the heels of World War One, and no one wanted to fight. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, that actually reminds me, when I was flipping through this book, I was finding so many quotes I liked, but I stuck with just one. But there was one where he's talking about Albertine, the old lady. Mm-hmm. She's like, what? She like can't believe that they would kick Anne out of her house. Like, where will she go? They, they don't even care if she has a place to live. And he's like thinking about the fact that like. They're so ignorant. Like, she doesn't even know the half of what it's going to end up being. Yeah. Like, she's 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 indignant about that, and by the end of the war, that's going to be nothing to her. And it's so weird, too, because Helen... Well, should have started being indignant a long time ago. Which is actually kind of a prophecy, because McInnes wrote this book in 1942, and it was set in 1940, so the war hadn't even ended, and she didn't even know when it was going to end, and it was like... Yeah, it's really cool. I, I just, yeah. And a couple of her other books, too. I cannot get over the fact that she, like, she didn't know how the war was going to end. She's writing about World War II during World War II. It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, and the perspective is so interesting. Well, <laughs> you like World War II novels. I don't like World War II books. But I you love don't? I, no. Why? I just don't like them. I've read a lot of bad ones. And I've read a lot of depressing ones. Mm-hmm. And it's just at this point, it's not the most interesting war to me. I'd rather read a book set in a different war. Oh, wow. I've never even thought of any other war comparing to World War II as far as interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. But yeah, so I love this book, though. And I knew you liked World War II, but also that you were like kind of burned out on it. Yeah, I was oh. going through a phase where I was like, I read a lot about like what happened to the Jews and all that. And I was just kind of depressed about it and not really wanting to readdress it for a good long time. And you were like, oh, but it's not that depressing. I was like, okay. And I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, oh, she's totally right. Until like the ending of the book when he gets beat up over and over and over by the Gestapo. But mostly it's a good book. Rebecca is sick right now. (laughs) Yeah, you can tell. We're sharing the same mic. (laughs) So next week it'll be Holly sounding like a whatever I sound like. An alligator. (laughs) Okay, Holly. So about characters. Yeah. So should I address her in the main one? Mm, we'll do him last. Start with Matthews. Ah, my other favorite is. <laughs> Matthews, okay. He's basically, like we said, Hearn's mentor. And 
he is like obsessed with thoroughness, which again is very appropriate, um, seeing as with World War II, like a huge thing was the Germans being so thorough. And so the Allies really had to learn how to be thorough right back at them. <laughs> so when Hearn goes into France to imitate Corlay, uh, Matthews was like, okay, now we got to remove this one tooth that Corlay happens to not have in the back of his mouth. Before we explain this, I don't think we explain this in the synopsis. The whole premise of the book, we should have put it in the synopsis, but the whole premise of the book is there that there's this guy, Corlay, who's French. And Matthews, because he works with British intelligence, he looks exactly like Corlay, so he goes into Brittany, where Corlay is from, and pretends to be him so the Germans won't suspect him. Cor like, Corlay was found at the Battle of Dunkirk, and so Hearn is basically pretending that he's Corlay, he got wounded at the Battle of Dunkirk, and has finally made it back home. Now that the Germans have won, he's not in the French army anymore. And so when they're getting him prepared to be that guy, that's what Holly's talking about. Matthew's precautions. And so basically he had Hearn remove one of his tooths to look the most like Corlay that he possibly could, which later Hearn was like thankful for. Even initially he was like, that's that's rather picky. But he was like, oh, every time I smile now I think about that. So I'm glad. Yeah, he tattooed a completely hidden birthmark. <laughs> yeah. Corlay had a birthmark that you like never saw because his it was like on his back somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And Hearn ended up being grateful for that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> I liked Matthews a lot. He's like a very like moody, strongly opinionated person <laughs> who's super smart. And he has my last, he has my last name. Yeah, he has your last name. You're probably related to him. <laughs> probably so. Especially seeing as he's Scottish. I, are you Scottish or are you Irish? Pick. I actually love so many of the characters in this book besides Matthews. There's also... Corlay's mom, Madame Corlay, she's amazing, but we don't really have time to talk about her. Miles, the American, he's very independent <laughs> and amazing. Um, and how, how how do you pronounce his name, Holly? Oh, man. Terranor? Terranor. That's how we as Americans would pronounce it. Terranor. I, I, I don't know how to pronounce French. I was trying to pronounce it like, I don't know, like kind of a... Well, like if you do the guttural R, it'd be like, and he has a, he has an accent over the second E. So I don't know. Does that mean it's like the accented syllable? Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I, I, maybe you say it, but that's probably wrong. And we're just going to say Karen or like Americans, <laughs> <laughs> but Karen is one of my favorite characters. Like I love him so much. He kind of fulfills one of my favorite character tropes, which I call the village cynic, because he he's like the school teacher in this little village that Hearn comes to live in. And he hates Corlay and therefore Hearn. He also hates, well, let me try my French again, Monsieur le Curé, but who's like the, I probably pronounced it wrong, but he's like the priest of the village. But he hates him too, because he's the school teacher and the school teacher used to be the priest. But Karenor is all, like, modern and has a modern education. I think he came from Rennes, I think. Mm -hmm. the Like, a big city in Brittany. I would just pronounce it Rhine, but, you know. Rennes? I don't know how you pronounce it. But he came from there, and he's, like, the school teacher, and he limps. So he has, like, a lame leg. And he also is in love with Elise, who's, like... The most horrible woman on the face of the planet. Oh, uh, Yeah. But, but he thinks that she's not. He thinks that Corlay led her astray and she's actually an innocent soul at heart. And he's all, he's 
like my favorite thing about him is that he is such a cynic on the outside and like the way he expresses himself he's always being like sarcastic and bitter and just like smarter than everybody else but like the reasons behind his actions like his deepest convictions are like oh this sweet pure woman and oh I believe in like people working together to save my country that I actually care about from the Nazis like he's such an idealist and it's because he's such a burned idealist that he's like such a cynic and so I just I just love him and he ends up you know working with Corlett or not Corlett because he finds out that he's Hearn we're really giving away everything I think it's fine yeah it's fine the book is still interesting even if you know some of the like plot twists Mm -hmm. even though like the plot twists are fun but yeah I just love Karen he's such an interesting character I like He's such a sincere character, even though he never says anything without there being, like, some element of sarcasm to it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, there's a part I like where he gets mad at the one guy in the village for, oh, I wish I could find the part. He's like something about, you know, it's funny. The, this family, they're, like, very good Christians. And I've never considered myself a Christian. But then he's, like, all mad that they're not living up to their Christian faith. Just, I actually really like that part. I know. It was so good. It was, like... That's, that's another thing I like about Helen McInnes' books is, like, they're, like, fast-paced spy thrillers, but she just discusses interesting ideas and has her characters, like, interested in interesting things. And so you, like, think after reading her books, even though mostly they're just, like, super exciting. I actually would not say this book was at all fast-paced. That's funny. I would because, like, literally so much happens in it. I actually thought that it was very slow paced, which after reading it, I realized that it was so well done. And when the the book was released initially in 1942, like it was very well accepted. She won an award for it. But today, I think if it was released, it would not be accepted with the same appreciation just because people are like exposed to stuff like Marvel, which is just stuff your brain full of information, like the whole way through. Explosions, 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 explosions. How about another explosion? A moment of rest? Wow, we'll take care of that. (laughs) And this book, like, like whole huge portions of it are dedicated to describing... This is true. He's just like out in the field digging potatoes. And then he's just walking across the land. And then he's just walking across the land again. (laughs) And then he's looking. Yeah, no, it's true. He's like riding his bike down the road to Dole. And there was this one moment particularly like right before a piece of action did actually happen where he and this little boy were walking through like some sand dune areas that was like a flat plain. That was in Mont Mm Saint-Michel. I love that part. Like it's such a cool setting. Anyways, go on. Well, and I appreciate a bit of description for sure, but she just like goes all out and it's like, wow, this is a lot of information that doesn't really have any effect on the plot at all. And I'm going to forget all of it as soon as... But to me, that's important because if the plot is just happening in a vacuum, then it's not actually as engaging. The fact that the plot is so grounded in Nazi-occupied Brittany... In Mont St. Michel, and you, you're there, you've just come through the crypts under the monastery, and you're, or it's not a monastery, it's an abbey. Whatever. Is that the same thing? Um, I, like, don't actually know the answer to that. <laughs> you've, just, you've just come through there, you've, like, snuck down through the garden trying to go with the shadows, and then you're, like, going across the tidal flats where there's just quicksand pits everywhere, and you're just following this 16-year-old boy, hoping he knows where he's taking you, <laughs> and trying and hoping the Germans don't catch you. Like, I don't know, the fact that you can so vividly, like, taste and picture and hear the setting 
means that the plot is so much more exciting because you actually feel like you're there. It's not just noise. It's actually a plot. I don't know. It just kind of felt like a Tolkien level to me. Um, So let's talk about Anne. Anne, a feminist's dream come true. Despite people who say otherwise. Yes, Holly was reading Goodreads reviews on this book for some reason. And? Basically, someone was like, yeah, I mean, like, it was a pretty good book. But the two main characters were just so stereotypical. The two main characters being Elise, who is like leading the men astray with her beauty. Um, And then Anne, who is like this quiet, shy, you know, that stereotype. Which Anne is not that stereotype at all because she's so like brave and strong and intelligent. (laughs) Like so much hidden depth. But the best part about it is she's not loud about it at like a lot of females are depicted in Marvel movies. It's like, why do you hate that Marvel in every episode? Marvel, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's just that it's very much like subtly implied in her personality. And it's like practical. Like it's the way she acts. It's not so much the way she thinks of herself and wants people to perceive her. Yeah, she doesn't care how she appears. Yeah, which is nice. And she has like the courage of her convictions. If she thinks something is the right thing to do, she'll just do it. Mm-hmm. Like being friends with Karenor. Yeah. Yeah, when nobody else wanted to be. I love their friendship. Me too. Yeah. No, Anne is an amazing character. I really love her. I also love Hearn, who's the main character. He's a a seminomoral. Yeah. Because we love him so much and we want to wrap him in blankets and protect him (laughs) till the end of time. I especially loved that one chapter where it was. I especially loved reading about Hearn getting beat up. Because, yeah, he was being tortured by the Gestapo for information, which is, like, literally one of the most horrible situations you could ever end up in, in, like, history. And I love how he's just sitting there in his cell being like, people have been through worse. I needn't feel sorry for myself. This is stupid. I'm going to stop this self-pity. Yeah. Dude, you're, like, almost dead. So do we want to talk about the author some? Yeah, I want to get into the historical context because, like I said, this book is written in 1942 by a British woman whose husband was in MI6. And she has a degree in, like, her master's degree in French-German. Was that from the University of Glasgow? Yes. She was Scottish even better. (laughs) Right? Yeah, so she really drew from her experience to write this book. I mean, because her husband was a soldier. And he was actually a scholar, too. And she got a diploma as a librarian, so she was obviously spending a great deal of time reading. Um, Oh, she's so well-read. I've read more of her books, and she references, like, I understand maybe half of the literary references she makes. mm -hmm. And then the rest I like. I'm like, I need to read that, too. (laughs) And her husband and her were always, like, trying to save up money to take vacations to Europe. And wherever they would go in Europe, she would, like, take notes about, which you could really see that, like, she had kind of been these places and knew them personally. Oh, yeah. Like, okay, the way the... The people of Brittany, the way she portrays them in this book, you can tell she thought they were awesome, kind of. Like, she thought their history was really cool, and they were really cool. And not that she, like, portrays them as, like... Oh, yeah, you you definitely know their flaws. Yeah, but I just I just feel like you can tell that she really liked France, and especially Brittany, and their history. Yeah, I learned a lot about the area, actually, because, like, my knowledge of World War II has mostly been centered around America and Britain and Germany's involvement and, like, some France. 
but this definitely comes more from the French perspective, and specifically during the armistice, which I didn't know so much about that either, especially since it wasn't really an armistice. It was just kind of like a surrender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but assignment in Brittany was so, like, accurate. You looked this up. Uh, basically, so it came out in 1942, so the people who were basically in Hearn's position, like, going into... Like they were sent to work with the French resistance from England and stuff. Right. They had to, it was a required reading for them, yeah. which is insane. <laughs> and the book won the New York Times first fiction bestseller in 1942 when it came out. Didn't you also tell me that, well, okay, so her first book, Above Suspicion, came out right before this book. And yeah, this was her, the second book she ever and wrote. And it's set in Germany. This couple goes like to Germany in the summer of 1939. So right before the war breaks out and they're an English couple. Um, Didn't you tell say that was actually based on her own experience? Mm-hmm. Like, it was loosely like based on the fact that she herself went to on a honeymoon. <laughs> oh, yeah. She went on her honeymoon to Bavaria. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know too much about the details. I just know that that was, like, the premise for the book, basically. I haven't read it myself like you have. Right, but I thought you said that, like, she kind of hadn't thought about it that much, but, like, going to Bavaria on her honeymoon, she kind of observed the influence of Nazi regime on the country, and she was like, oh, I literally hate this, and I'm going to write books against it. Yeah, which, and you point out, was kind of risky because, like, again, the Germans were very thorough and they they read their literature and banned books appropriately. Like, if they invaded Britain and found her books, I'm sure that wouldn't be too good for her. Which Britain was, you know, kind of hanging on by a thread there for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but thanks to Hearn, they made it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, yeah, the Battle of Britain happened because Hearn was sent after Dunkirk, which... Is my favorite event in all of history. Yes. Continue. Tell us about Dunkirk, Holly. I just love the evacuation of Dunkirk because, well, A, Winston Churchill was the one to, like, inspire the idea, basically, or, or make it happen, um, which I'm a big fan of Winston, even if he did have problems like everybody else. So don't beat up on him. Anyway. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I just, like, everyone came together to make that happen. Just people in their little fishing boats and then these bigger, you know, army boats and just... They pulled together so many random resources and then like so many people could have died who didn't just because they went that extra mile. And God was totally involved too because the English Channel, which was always like horribly windy and blustery at that time of year, was completely still. And then like it was very overcast so that the German, you guys probably know this, but the German buyers couldn't see them. But yeah, no, the English Channel thing, because in the book, I like how that comes in where like people are still doing that, Mm -hmm. right? Like in the middle of the book, he goes on a trip to take some people and send some information via some fishermen who are just fishing way, way out in the English Channel. That's all they're doing. Nothing to see here, Nazis. And yeah, they're always, that's like his route back is across the English Channel. And he's always just like, there's so much little like just ordinary people just doing literally their tiny little bit Mm -hmm. but it like comes together and matters it really made me admire like the little things that just ordinary people do and how that was so important for the war effort and how in some ways they were even more courageous than people who were I guess to put it a certain way fighting full-time because they were live their lives and hope that the Nazis didn't find out what they were doing and kill their families yeah. Well, and also, like... They had to hide everything they did. They were constantly under pressure, at least with soldiers, like, sometimes, you know, they might be back in Britain for some reason and mm-hmm. 
have a little breathing room. We're just chilling in the trenches where there's not a battle going on right this second. It's yeah. a battle of every single day. Yeah. For the people under occupation. Like the little boy taking little boy, he was like sixteen. The boy taking him across the tidal flats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you had to constantly be aware of the Germans and it might be tempting at some points, like you're tired, it's been a long day, maybe let your guard slip a little. But like, no, these ordinary people had to constantly be thinking in terms of the war. And that's like a different sort of suffering than the rest of the soldiers and mm-hmm. people had to go through. Well, and there's a difference between being in someone's position like Albertine versus Hearn. Like Hearn is like, he's committed. He knows what mission, it's all all it's or nothing mission. for him. Mm-hmm. But all these other people, like, it would be so much more tempting to just let the little thing slip or not help this person or because it doesn't feel like you have as big of an impact, but you do. So I don't know. That was that was something that struck me reading this book. Um, Did we talk a lot about the writing of the book? Because I feel like. I mean, we definitely talked about the prose and how you didn't like how she described every tree. (laughs) I did sometimes, and other times I didn't. It was weird. One of the things I found very interesting about her writing was a lot of things were, like, very subtle, or they were, like, Mm -hmm. only implied very vaguely. And it's like, well, this is probably... And also her transitions were very interesting. (laughs) Like, we would come in and out of Hearn's thoughts all the times, and she would just switch scenarios all of a sudden. And it... And sometimes it was a little hard to keep up with, but I think it's just because I'm really not used to that type of writing. And I don't think I realized how good it was until I like read the whole thing and kind of got used to it. I mean, reading uh, 429 pages, it's like you kind of get in the zone. And so I started reading like the very beginnings of another book and I was like, oh, this doesn't even compare. (laughs) Did you? Hearn was a little bit too smart, like a little unrealistically smart because like the author did a good job making because he was constantly in these scenarios where he's trying to be Corlay and he doesn't know about this little piece of Corlay's bluff like he did a lot of work going into this memorizing all these little details but there's only so much kept stuff from him too yeah there's only so much he could learn and so he would have to like kind of talk his way through some of these situations like he didn't even know about Elise going into this which Elise was like a huge uh leader of like basically fifth columnists yeah he had to talk his way through these situations and it's like okay the author did a good job where it's like he wasn't saying things that you technically wouldn't be able to say as a real human in a situation like this but it was like he thought of it a little too quickly or a little too like he said it with a certain inclination in his voice that apparently Corlay would have exactly said it like that (laughs) and it was like how is he doing this so well? I feel like he's trained to do that, though. He's like an intelligence agent. Yeah. But couldn't you really prep? <laughs> and as I remember in the book, he's like insanely worried the whole time during those conversations. His mind is just like running around at squirrel cage. Like, mm-hmm. please don't let me say the wrong thing. Let me be real careful how I say this. Like, he's just so worried. And it's a combination of skill and luck that he gets out of those situations. I was just like, it seems like he was a little too lucky. No, no, he had Matthews, remember? (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke that you'll understand if you read this book, which you should, even though it's 429 pages. (laughs) For Hearn, for the history, and also because it's a really good story. Mm -hmm. And also for Karenor, I love him. And for the ending. Let's talk about that. So basically, Anne and Hearn are about to split ways, like he's going to take off the coast, get back to England, and is going to go back and live with her aunt. And then I think it was the Gestapo, it may have just been the German army, 
they were coming into the coast. And uh, basically, last minute, they changed plans, and she had to come with her in order not to get killed. But she still ended up getting shot in the lung, which we don't even know about. Like, she got shot, but she didn't tell us, and it wasn't until they were on the boat that she just kind of casually mentions it on the last page. No, she, like, collapses. Yeah, but it's like the author didn't really... Oh, you're saying the author casually mentioned it. Yeah. And did not casually mention, hey, there's blood in my lung. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It basically was like all the soldiers were talking. They were focusing on getting the boat out. The Germans were yelling. But Hearn was only paying attention to Anne because she was shot in the lung. Anyway, that's the end of this story. (laughs) She says something about her hand fluttered, hopefully. At the very end. Do you, do you, are you hearing yourself? <laughs> but yeah, it was just a big shock because also like we don't know if Anne died or not. And so I was just kind of like, really? <laughs> hey, maybe it was a metaphor for the uncertainty of the war in 1942 when this woman was writing this book. We have hope, but my goodness, we Western I don't come out of this. <laughs> yeah. I think you're giving it too much credit. Well, I think you're taking away too much credit when you say Hearn is too smart. Hearn is not too smart. To be fair, I'm not the one who has reread this book, like, what, five times? Oh, more than that. (laughs) Every time, I I guess, what number? I think I started with two, then three, (laughs) then five. She's always like, oh, more than that. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I've read it a lot. I didn't, I haven't read it in like two years, three years. And I still remember it well enough to discuss it with you. Which is insane. Anyway, that's Assignment and Brittany, guys. Yeah, thanks for listening. And we hope that you learned stuff about World War II that you already knew. <laughs> but but it was a refresher. This is the two retired homeschoolers signing off. <laughs> Guys, thank you for listening to the fourth episode of The Two Retired Homeschoolers. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts, and we will now be uploading episodes bi-weekly.